Good evening. Certainly a blessing for us to be here tonight and to worship the God of heaven. And I want to thank you for your words of encouragement that you gave to me this morning. And I hope and pray that tonight will be a lesson that will be applicable to us. When I think about what we studied this morning, uh, I also thought about uh, this afternoon's sermon and that some of you are going to be thinking while we're going through this lesson, how does this apply to me? And I hope to show you how this definitely applies to our lives, but I want you just to wait a few minutes, okay? That's why I asked from you. So I want you to think about the lesson that we're thinking about is, am I being deceived? That's the question. Am I being deceived? You know, this question, this uh, statement is found, uh, do not be deceived, found four times in the New Testament. You find it in various scriptures like, of course, uh, what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good morals. And so we find that when we go throughout our lives, we know that Satan, he's been here for thousands of years. He knows how to deceive people. He knows what ways can tra- entrap us. And so he has a great idea of how to get you and to get me. That's why and we sang the song, Soldiers of Christ Arise, put on the whole armor of God, that you may withstand the wiles of the devil. Notice it's not just one wile, but it's many wiles. There are many tricks that the devil has up his sleeve that, can, that he can trick us with. And so I hope to, us to see that tonight. But I want us to kind of think about this as Tony been doing on Sunday, uh, Sunday nights. He's been doing a kind of a questions and answers. And so I'm going to kind of do a question as well, except I cheated a little bit. I asked the question. And, uh, but I want you to see that how relevant it is because we as Christians, we come on a day-to-day basis with people who are of different religions. And we have to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us with meekness and fear. We have to be set for the defense of the gospel. And so we need to think about how we would discuss certain matters with people. And so I want you to... Just think about two points with me tonight. We're going to think about an explanation of a question, and then we're going to look at an examination of ourselves. You ever had Mormon elders come to you and knock on your door? They came and said, hey, we have another testament of Jesus Christ called the Book of Mormon. And they will say to you, this is a book that came after the Bible, it came in 1830 and it was revealed to Joseph Smith on golden tablets and it was buried in the Hill Cumorah in upstate New York. And Joseph Smith, he was called by God to be a prophet. Now, you might ask, you might say to yourself, uh, hmm, I don't necessarily believe that. And for all of us probably in here, we don't. We don't believe that. But why is it that we don't believe that this book that claims to be from God? I mean, we have Joseph Smith here. We have the three witnesses, his uh his friends, who said that they saw the golden plates. Why don't we believe them? You think about it this way. On the right hand, don't we believe as Christians, we believe the apostles? Don't we believe their eyewitness testimony that they saw the resurrected Jesus? Don't we believe that they were sent by the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth? Certainly we do. And, of course, why don't we believe that which is on the left-hand side? Why don't we believe that Joseph Smith had a vision? Why don't we believe these three witnesses? And there's a great, a great reason why is because of the evidence. So some people might ask you, well, okay, if the Book of Mormon is not from God, where did it originate? Where did it come from? 
And I hope to provide to you to just a few, for a few minutes, just give you a historical reconstruction of how it may came to be. And this is a short answer to this question. We begin with Solomon Spalding. He was a Revolutionary War hero. And Solomon Spalding uh, was born in Connecticut. And as you can see, he became a preacher. He went to Dartmouth College. He actually had many jobs. But on those jobs, he actually got hurt a lot of times. And he actually had gotten himself into deep debt. Having some of us have gotten ourselves sometimes into some debt. And he needed to pay back his creditors. Well, he decided to go with his uh, hobby. And all of us have a favorite hobby. Well, his hobby was writing. He loved to write. So that's what he did. He wrote two major manuscripts. One was called Manuscript Story, and one other one was called Manuscript Found. Now, he actually never completed the first one, Manuscript Story. He stopped writing it. And then, but the other story, it became lost, and I'll explain that in just a moment. In fact, what he did was he, he actually was about to publish it at a uh, publishing firm in Pittsburgh, but something happened to it. Now, when you go to the Mormon website, their official website, they'll say, well, okay, here's what is the Spalding manuscript. Because people have often theorized how did the Book of Mormon come to be, and they think they've given you an answer. And they'll say that Spalding's fiction is about a group of Romans blown off course on a journey to Britain who arrived instead in America. Well, you see, that was referring to manuscript story, his first book. What happened to the second book? That's what we want to understand. So how do we know that manuscript story is not manuscript found? How do we know they're not the same book? Well, there's three ways we can know. Number one, it's because would you ever publish a book that was never finished? Remember, we already said that the first book was never published. Secondly, we know that there were witnesses who said that he wrote more than one manuscript. And thirdly, there... Did you see what I just read? It was about a group of Romans. Well, the manuscript found story is about a group of Jews who come to America. So here we have these witnesses. I'm just going to highlight those which are in blue if you can see them. Spalding had many other manuscripts, said Aaron Wright. John Miller, manuscripts of Spalding, two or three books. One which was called Manuscript Found, Matilda Davidson, had a great variety of manuscripts. Recall that one was entitled The Manuscript Found. I think he would, uh, the wife of the deceased Spalding would know the answer to this question, whether he wrote many manuscripts. And also his daughter, Matilda McKinstry. So here we have two possible, uh, who, two books he wrote. The one on the left, we actually have in Oberlin College today. But the other one was lost. Well, how did it become lost? Well, there was a man named Joseph Miller. He came and took care of Spalding, and he said that Sidney Rigdon had stolen the manuscript. That's his claim. And this was around 1814, and two years later, Spalding died. Spalding never knew what happened or what would become of his manuscript. Now, here's the interesting thing on this timeline here. We have in 1822, we do know that Sidney Rigdon was a preacher in the Baptist church in Pittsburgh. But did he live during this time of 1814 to 1816? Well, there is evidence to suggest that he did and that he came into contact with this manuscript and he had stolen it. So if you look at here, what, what can we become of uh, manuscript found? Well, 
We have some eyewitnesses that make a connection between Solomon Spalding and Sidney Rigdon. First, you have Rebecca Eichbaum. She helped in the post office, and she knew both of these men. She knew that they came to get their mail. She even knew about how Sidney Rigdon would actually hang around in the publishing firm where Solomon Spalding's manuscript had, was going to be published. So there is a possible way or scenario in which that theft could take place. Then you have Isaac Craig. He says that the reason that uh, sometimes Rigdon would come to the publishing firm was because he was a, what was called a tanner. Remember in the Bible, in Acts chapter 10, we have Simon the Tanner, one who deals with animal skins. Well, here we have uh, Rigdon. He was one who dealt with animal skins, and he, they would make uh, you know, uh, papers from this and, and sheepskins and bookbinders and stuff like that. Well, that's how he could have came into contact with this publishing firm. Then you have John Winter. And John Winter, he stayed with Rigdon for a while. He was a preacher. And he said that one day, Spalding, uh, I mean, sorry, Rigdon came to him and, and he reached out from his desk and he says, this is manuscript found. This was written by Spalding. And this man had died. And uh, so later on in his life, he actually gave an eyewitness testimony that, yes, I can connect Solomon Spalding's novel to Sidney Rigdon. Then you have Amarilla Dunlap. Basically, and I'm not going to read all this, but basically here is a niece of the wife of Sidney Rigdon. She stayed with them for a while. And we would have Sidney Rigdon, he'd be reading a book at night, and he'd be reading the manuscript, and the wife would get on to him because she would say, why are you reading that same book over and over again? Stop doing that. And she said, I'm, I want to burn that book. And, she said, and he said, no, you won't. This will become a great thing someday. And he just, mem- he just was so, uh, you know, infa- uh, infatuated with it. Well, so you have all these eyewitnesses you can connect to Spalding to Sidney Rigdon. You have the ones I just mentioned. And if you notice, I, I put some more, like Harvey Baldwin up here. These uh, were people who lived in Bainbridge, Ohio, and they testify that they saw Sidney Rigdon working on a manuscript. And you have Dency Thompson. She says that she saw Sidney Rigdon and others look like that they were getting inspiration from God in writing a book. So we have eight eyewitnesses. Well, then you go a little bit further. Remember I told you that he died, uh, Spalding died in 1816. Well, you go a little bit further, just 16 years later, and you have peop- uh, these Mormon missionaries who come to the same town in which Sidney Rigdon, I mean, which uh, Solomon Spalding had lived. Now, Solomon Spalding, he loved to read his book. He would read his book to his friends and relatives, some passages that he wrote. So these would be on the minds of his friends and his relatives. So it's really interesting when you think about it, you have someone come up here like I am, and they're saying, hey, this is a Book of Mormon that came from God. They start reading it, and it sounds familiar to you. Why? Because 16 years earlier, that book, same book had been read. So we have these two Mormon missionaries, Orson Hyde and Samuel H. Smith, and a friend named Nehemiah King. He stood up and he said, this is Solomon Spalding's work. And a lot of them agreed with King. And here are those testimonies you can read about how you can connect the Conuit Ohio witnesses 
Oh, look at eight testimonies who say that they realize, hey, Solomon Spaulding's work is indeed the Book of Mormon. Let me just give you an idea of what John Spaulding wrote. This was Solomon Spaulding's brother. Let me just read the part in bold here. He says, he then told me, uh, he then told he had been writing a book, talking about Solomon Spaulding, which he intended to have printed, the avails of which he thought would enable him to pay all debts. The book was entitled Manuscript Found, of which he read to me many passages. And then he talks about, it says, it was a historical romance of the first settlers of America, endeavored to show that the American Indians are the descendants of the Jews or the lost tribes. It gave a detailed account of their journey from Jerusalem by land and sea until they arrived in America under the command of Lehi and Nephi. And he goes on to explain a, a, basically a summarized version of what the Book of Mormon is all about. And so when you put all these testimonies together, you, you put, I put this chart for your benefit in that you can put down all the details that they talk about here on the left-hand side, and then you have what each eyewitnesses, how many of them. There were three that talked about the title of the book and so forth. And you, as you can look at, across all this chart here, you can see that each of these have to deal with the Book of Mormon, except for one, and that is this one. No religious material, meaning no scriptures. Uh, how does that fit in? Well, remember Sidney Rigdon was a preacher. You think he would have added scriptures to the, make it sound like it was a book from God? Certainly. And so that's how we can historically reconstruct how the Book of Mormon came. And then you have even more conduit witnesses. You have those who came later in their lives, and they testified to this same matter. Then... You have people who even knew that Sidney Rigdon, he was involved in the Mormon religion before he even became a part of it. You see, he actually supposedly came and went, was converted one year after the Mormon religion was established. Well, he had been, Sidney Rigdon had told some of his co-workers and friends that there was a new religion coming and he knew about a book. Well, how would he have known except that he was a part of it? And so you have all these witnesses here. And then you have even more witnesses that can show you that Sidney Rigdon had a connection with Joseph Smith, the one who claimed to be the prophet of the Latter-day Saint religion. And so imagine us being in court. Imagine us putting this on trial. Don't you think this is an overwhelming case to show you where the Book of Mormon actually came from? That it actually came from a man who had died whose manuscript was stolen? How sad that there have been so many people deceived on this matter. And you, to top it off, you even have Sidney Rigdon's grandson. He came along and he understood this whole thing to be a fraud. This was the Salt Lake Daily Tribune written in April 15, 1888. And I'm not going to read that, but I just wanted to show you the title of what Sidney Rigdon's grandson had said. I like how, what he says here. None of us ever doubted that they got the whole thing up. But Father always maintained that Grandfather helped get up the original Spalding book. So I've talked to you about an explanation of a question. Where did the Book of Mormon originate? And you might be asking, I might say, that, say it one more time. How does this apply to me? I mean, what, I mean, yes, I may be able to now uh, try to talk to Latter-day Saints about where their book came from. But how does this really apply to me? And I hope that you can see why I gave you this story. Because there are millions of people that are deceived by this book and we can tell them the truth. But here's the thing. The devil may not get you with one trick. 
he may get you with another trick. That's the way that the devil works. He tries to entrap us in different ways. And we would say, ah, I'm not going to ever believe that book came from God. And you, and you shouldn't. But there are other ways the devil is trying to entrap us. And that's why we need to make an examination of ourselves. Look at 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. And then just back up to chapter 11. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow as a serpent deceived thee by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Let me give you an example of this. In the book of Amos, you find that uh, we find God talking to Amos and he is to talk to the Gentile nations and also to Israel. Now, you can imagine the northern king of Israel reading this book. And they're saying, yeah, tell them. Tell them, tell them Amos. Tell those Gentile nations like the Philistines, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab. Even tell Damascus and even Judah, your sister nation. Tell them what sins they've racked up. Tell them how bad they really are. But then you get to chapter 2, verse 6. And all the way to chapter 9, verse 15. And we see that God lists their sins as well. They were deceived. They didn't realize that they were in the wrong. The devil had entrapped them. They thought, ah, everybody else is wrong, but I'm not wrong. So so we have to look at ourselves. We have to examine ourselves. And so that's a while that the devil can entrap us with. And I actually know of a case here in McMinnville where a young man went to one of our sister congregations who was deceived by this book. He went into the Mormon religion. And so Galatians 1, 6 through 9, as the Bible says, we are not to uh, uh, go to another gospel. The true gospel has been revealed for over 2,000 years, and we need to cling to it and it alone. So we don't believe this book to be from God. What about this, though? I want us to think about this. Why is it that some of us are not evangelizing? Why is it that some of us do not share the good news of Jesus Christ? Have you ever thought about that? When's the last time you really did talk to someone about the true church? Talk about the true plan of salvation. Talk about the true Jesus and who he is. When is that last time? You know, I want to ask you this question. Do you believe universalism to be true? Universalism is the idea that everyone's going to be saved. And you might say, well, of course not, Shane. I don't believe that. But sometimes our actions reflect that they do. We act like, oh, that person's actually okay. He's okay. He's in a safe condition when, in fact, he's in a lost condition. And so we need to think about, as the Bible says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone, everyone who's accountable to the law of God has sinned. Sin is a transgression of the law, 1 John 3, verse 4. And so we all have sinned, and we all deserve to go to hell because we have, we have committed treason against God's will. And so we need to ask ourselves, Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14, it says here, Enter by the narrow gate, for why is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction? And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. 
Was Jesus a universalist? No. He realized that there are people who have the free will, who have the choice, who will choose rather to go to hell than to go to heaven. And so we need to ask ourselves, why am I not evangelizing? It's bec- and you have to think about it. You have to examine yourself. And you must come to the knowledge of the truth that I'm not loving my neighbor as I should. Because if you love your neighbor as you should, which is the second greatest command, then you will share the gospel with people. And so I ask you to do that. Don't be tricked by the devil in that way. What about living like the world? That's what some people do. You find that do we take sin seriously? Well, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Do you believe what the Apostle Paul said? That those who practice such things, will they enter into heaven? They will not. James 4, verse 4, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 1 John 2, 15 through 17, do not love the world nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And so I ask each and every one of us, am I living like the world? You have to ask yourself. And so if you are, then you're an enemy of God. Because that's what James says. If you want to be a friend with the world, then you're an enemy against God. So we need to be more like Jesus. I love what Jesus says. For I come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. As a Christian, as you grow in your faith, you recognize more and more how sweeter Jesus becomes and how great his will is for our lives. I appreciate so much more the ethics and morals that we find in God's word and how they're placed there for our safety and our guidance and our direction. Oh, the great wisdom of God. We should be thankful for what he has revealed to us. But then another wall that Satan can trip us up with is are we worshiping God in spirit and in truth? Now, in the Lord's church, we do a wonderful job of saying, let's go back to the Bible. Let's do what the Bible says. And we have done that for many years, and I'm thankful for that. So we definitely, no doubt, got the truth part down. Because Jesus says in John 17, 17, your word is truth. But sometimes we have this imbalance We don't have the spirit. We don't have an attitude of reverence and submission and concentration on worship. For example, in Hebrews 10.25, the Bible says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Do we love to come to worship? Do you love to come be with your brothers and sisters in the Lord? I hope that you do. It is such a privilege and a blessing to be in the sight of God and to worship Him. It's so wonderful. But sometimes I wonder about people because they put their priorities, they don't put them right. 
Psalm 27, verse 4, I love the attitude of the psalmist. One thing I desire to the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. You know, see, it's so important for us to have both spirit and truth. With giving, do we give out of grudgingly or necessity? Or do you give with a cheerful heart? You see, we're supposed to give with in spirit and truth. What about with singing? Are you really singing your heart out to God? Now, God didn't ask us to sing with the best voice, but He did ask us to. He did command us to sing. Singing is a commandment of God. We're to be filled with the Spirit. But some of us refuse to sing. We refuse to sing to God. Is that not? Sinning against God? Yes, it is. And so we need to think about, am I really worshiping God in spirit and in truth? Do I really come to want to know Him and His power and and, and His wisdom and His ways? Do I really come to be transformed and leave here to serve? Otherwise, I'm just being a pew warmer and I'm not being transformed, but I'm actually being conformed to the world. And so we need to think about, are we entrapped by that? Are we forsaking our marriages? We have a problem in America today, and even also in South Korea, with people who treat their marriage like a commodity. Oh, I just can go out, sell sell this, and buy another one. So that's what they treat their husband or wife like. But, of course, we know what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 19. And we recognize why God has given us strict rules about the marriage covenant. Are we forsaking our marriages? Are we forsaking our families? As it says, marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Do we focus on the spiritual things at home with our family? You know, I've often said... That Bible class in, in church is like the icing on the cake. How many of you like cake? I do. I love icing too. And I like to put the icing on the cake. But you know something? We need to think about that with regards to Bible class here. I hope this is not the only Bible you get is coming here on Sunday morning and going to your Bible class. I hope that throughout the week... We are studying and engaging ourselves in the Word of God, and especially with our families, and helping them to grow in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's why the Bible says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. How about the sixth while? Am I being tricked by Satan that I'm not giving myself to greater spiritual development? You know, we're starting a new year. But... Have I really grown since last year? As a Christian, you should be going further and further up. You should be growing stronger. You should be able to become a a teacher or become a leader in some sense. You should be able to do some things that you weren't able to do before. And we all have been given these great talents and gifts, and we're to use them to the glory of God. And so am am I... Saying to myself, well, I've reached the status quo. I don't need to grow anymore. I'm okay. Everything's good. Is that the way that you are? Are you complacent? Is that the way that you feel? 
Well, the Bible says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And Peter would go on to say at the end of his second letter, continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I gave you an explanation to a question. Where did the Book of Mormon originate? And I think we can historically reconstruct where it came from. And you recognize, I don't believe, I don't believe in that book. And you're right. And I'm glad you wouldn't be deceived by that. But are you deceived in other ways? Has the devil been able to get you in another avenue? What about your family or your marriage? What about your spiritual development? What about worshiping God in spirit and truth? What about, you name it. You ask yourself, am I being deceived? And so, as Jesus, he came to set us free by the truth. If you are my disciples, you will abide in my word. And you shall know the truth. And the truth shall set you free. You know the truth. You know whether or not you're living right in the eyes of God. And if you recognize that you need to make some changes in your life, I hope that you will accept and obey that truth tonight because we will pray with you and for you. Or maybe you're not a Christian. Please, stop being deceived by this wicked, perverse world. Start living a life dedicated to the will of God, giving Him your all. Because Jesus came to die for you and for me and for everyone. And if you will believe on Him as the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess your faith in Him, be baptized, you can have your sins washed away by the blood of the Lamb. Will you come? By the way, we stand and sing the invitation song.